Welcome to the seventh episode of the Simple Medicines Podcast with your host, Hoji Alimi. On this episode, we'll be discussing hypochlorous acid with Dr. Jerry Stonemetz from Johns Hopkins, an Emmy Award-winning and Oscar-nominated film and TV producer, Corey Stern. Dr. Jerry Stonemetz is an on-staff physician at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He is an anesthesiologist by training, but now functions as the medical director of perioperative services, where he oversees all surgical procedures. He has expertise in informatics and is the editor of the only textbook written about anesthesia informatics. More recently, he has specialized in the creation of metrics to measure efficiency and outcomes in the perioperative space. Corey Shepard Stern is an Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning film and television producer. In addition to media, she has substantial experience as a social entrepreneur and advocate working in global health and social justice. Her most recent documentary, Bending the Arc, is currently on Netflix, and we recommend you check it out. We request that our audience does not self-diagnose and self-treat any medical conditions. The use of hypochlorous acid, if any, should be limited strictly to the claims approved by the local health ministry in each country and in the U.S. by the Food and Drug Administration and, when applicable, by the Environmental Protection Agency. Patients should follow the strict treatment options dictated to them by their physicians. Any change to such treatments without consulting your physician may result in serious adverse health conditions. The chemistry discussed in this program, hypochlorous acid, is produced with significant variances in concentration, pH, and stability by numerous companies worldwide. The use of such product outside of claims approved by the local Ministry of Health in each country may result in significant injury. The purpose of this episode is to discuss the science of hypochlorous acid as a drug and its potential applications in the field of medicine. Simple Medicine's mission is to provide education in healthcare and assist patients with access to medication and treatment options by providing them with financial assistance. Please log on to simplemedicines.com to donate. 100% of your donations are passed on to patients in need of financial aid. Please go online and make your $1 monthly donation at simplemedicines.com to join our cause. Thank you. Hello, my name is Hoji Alimi, and I'm going to be your host during this program. I'm joined by Dr. Jerry Stonemetz with John Hopkins, as well as Corey Stern, two phenomenal individuals in their respective fields who also come from two different backgrounds while they both focus on healthcare-related issues. Jerry and Corey, thank you and welcome. Thank you for having us. Today, we are going to talk about hypochlorous acid, or HOCL what is its importance and relevance to the world of healthcare, and how it can improve our protocols for better control, prevention, and treatment of infectious diseases. My goal during this podcast is not to discuss the business of one company over the other or market one product over others. My goal is to simply focus on the science of hypochlorous acid and its potential relevance as a potential drug or a medical device. How can we capture the power of this unique chemistry to better fight 
viral infections, bacterial infections, both at home and in hospitals. This could be easily a six to eight hour program, honestly. There is a lot to cover and discuss, but I'm hoping that we can hit at least on some of the most basic topics that relates to hypochlorous acid in this short episode. Jerry, Corey, once again, I would like to welcome both of you to this podcast. And I would like to ask you guys questions related to your past experiences. And if I can ask Corey first about her latest documentary, which is called Bending the Arc. It's clearly a phenomenal movie. I got it off of Netflix and I watched it. It shows the struggles and the challenges for a team of physicians, what they go through in bringing medicine to uh, third world. Corey, I would like to ask what made you create this documentary? And then also I want to know what's really important to you in terms of healthcare, what really attracts you, what you're passionate about. Thank you so much for having me. And this is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. In addition to being a filmmaker, I have lived in West Africa. And at the time that I was making this film, I was living in Liberia. And Liberia at that time had one of the most tragic healthcare systems or lack of healthcare systems in the world. So many of my friends and colleagues would get sick from just really simple things that were entirely preventable or entirely treatable. And I was consistently saddened by how, in addition to not having cancer treatment or any kind of more advanced medical care, there just wasn't simple medical care. And really what they needed was a healthcare system. There was no healthcare system following the war. And I saw this organization, Partners in Health, and realized that they had helped governments rebuild their healthcare systems, or in some cases, build their healthcare systems. And I was really interested in how they were able to do that. Like, how can you take the resources that are available through things like AIDS treatment programs, there is money for very specialized things like AIDS treatment programs, and build an entire healthcare system. Because it's silly to treat someone for HIV AIDS and then have them die of an infection or of malaria or of something unrelated to the HIV AIDS. So that's when I first started looking into this organization, Partners in Health, and getting to know the people there. And I was so impressed with what they were doing. And they're called Partners in Health because they work with the government, they work with the people, they really listen, and they figure out a way to provide assistance so that it builds a system of healthcare, which is really ultimately what we need. And they talk about a system of healthcare being stuff, staff, base, and systems. And I, I love that definition. I think that's what we're talking about here is stuff, the stuff of healthcare, which includes HOCL, in my opinion. So I started following these people around the world in Rwanda and Haiti, and then ultimately back home to Liberia to watch as they work to combat urgent healthcare crises after the earthquake in Haiti or cholera. I was so impressed with how they really focused on creating a system and then supplying that system with the right, as they say, it's such a silly word, stuff, but the right stuff to really treat a person when they walk in appropriately. So the, the movie is about healthcare equity, which is just a really fancy way of saying we all deserve healthcare. We all deserve science. We all deserve the fruits of 
science and how do we get the fruits of science to the people who really need it, to the people who have had the opportunity to experience the least. I remember one part of the movie showed passionate physicians in Africa, and they could see patients that were extremely sick, but they really didn't have anything to treat them. So they only had a stethoscope to just monitor them, but there was no treatment. It almost reminds me of places I have traveled to, especially in Middle East or in South America. It's very sad to see how People really lack the basics in terms of being treated for basic things, superficial infections and so on that can easily go systemic. Absolutely. Hoji, living in Liberia, which is a beautiful country with incredible people, I cannot tell you how many times I would come home from Liberia and I would walk into a simple drugstore here that is on every corner and look around with my eyes just wide with awe, thinking if I just had aisle three of this basic pharmacy in Liberia, literally lives could be saved because everyone deserves cancer care and all the most advanced treatments, but also the very simple things. And it's so frustrating and it's so disheartening for these healthcare providers, for these doctors and nurses and the community healthcare workers. And I saw that in making this movie and interviewing these doctors who talk about the only thing we could do was listen to them with a stethoscope or refer them somewhere else. And one of the doctors in the film says, I started thinking we should refer everyone somewhere else because we had no treatment. And where are you going to refer someone to? Because the situation is the same often across the country. Yeah, I, I hear the passion in you and I really appreciate it. That passion is what really we need more of. So, Jerry, thanks very much for being on this program with us as well. We'd love to hear your perspectives in the field of medicine. You're practicing, you're engaged at John Hopkins. What challenges do you see in your field based on your background? Thank you. It's a real honor to be able to join you in this. I listened to Corey discuss the disparity in Africa, and yet I'm living in the land of riches, according to healthcare. Hopkins has some of the most advanced healthcare in the world, and I've seen things here that you could only see at Hopkins, which is truly revolutionary. And yet, we still struggle with healthcare equity. I think one of the things that I've noticed, it's not anything novel, but it's certainly well-recognized, but we spend billions and billions of dollars on healthcare, and yet we are not truly delivering the, the value that we should be delivering. Just to go into a specific example, we're still losing millions of lives yearly through surgical site infections. Now, clearly my focus is in surgery. I'm an anesthesiologist by training. I'm the director of perioperative services here at Johns Hopkins. So I essentially oversee the, the business of surgery and our outcomes need to improve. We need to deliver a better value product. Surgical site infections, is a staggering problem in this country, and it is worldwide. An example that I thought relevant, I know that everybody knows that Tiger Woods is in the hospital sustaining massive injuries to his lower legs. If he develops a surgical site infection from this operation, which is very feasible, he could lose his leg. And there are people all over the world where this is happening daily. So we need to improve our management of surgery in particular. Diabetic foot ulcers is a good example. There are countless opportunities for us to improve our treatment of surgery and, and the infections afterwards. And that's really what drew me to hypochlorous acid. 
So when you're talking about infection and the potential for infection post-surgery, what are the primary reasons for that, Jerry? Is it because physicians are not washing their hands? Is it the nurses? Is it the protocols? Or is it bacteria that is becoming resistant to antibiotics? What are the primary causes that you think is responsible for these infections that are taking place in hospitals right now? Yeah, it's a complex problem. So there are multiple reasons, multiple variables. Hand washing clearly has an issue. I think the current pandemic has demonstrated that if we are really focused on hand washing, we can actually change the outcome. And for, for a long time now, we've been measuring something called ILI. It's influenza-like illness. And so it's in the emergency room. So how many emissions a day are patients coming in who are complaining of the flu or cold? Clearly that has gone up with SARS. But the number of admissions for ILI has gone down dramatically since we've implemented hand washing and masks. So we can affect that. I think that the biggest issue that we find is a contaminated wound. So in the case, going back to my example of Tiger Woods, he had a comminuted fracture. He had bones sticking through his skin. So that clearly becomes a contaminated wound. And the ability of bacteria to develop in that wound has a lot to do with the blood flow to that wound. So if we can get adequate blood flow to an area, we can typically prevent or at least curb any infections. But there's lots and lots of examples where it's tough to get a, a clean wound. One of the largest areas that we've seen surgical site infections is in colorectal surgery. So patients coming in for bowel resection. There's obviously bacteria that live in the gut. And it's very easy for that bacteria to spill out during surgery and essentially create a bowel infection, which can be fatal. The current therapy for infections is to open it, drain it, so it gets, it gets uh, pus out, basically, and then to treat with antibiotics. The challenge is that antibiotics travel by bloodstream, so if you have an area that is not well perfused, then you can't get the antibiotics to that area. And then the biggest problem, which is, frankly, as you alluded to, is becoming a worldwide disaster, is the development of antibiotic resistance. So what happens is bacteria's replicate very quickly and it's easy for them to mutate. In fact, it's a normal process of their growth and some of the mutations survive and others don't. In the use of antibiotics, it's not uncommon for us to not kill all the bacteria and the ones that survive are the ones that have developed mutations that allow them to become resistant to that antibiotic. We've reached the end of the road basically with antibiotic resistance. We have bacteria now that are resistant to every antibiotic known to man. And in fact, drug companies are not even creating new antibiotics because we've exhausted our science in how to combat antibiotic-resistant species. If we can't solve this, it's going to be more and more common that you're going to find completely untreatable infections that will lead to death. So, Corey, in Liberia, in Rwanda, in places that you have been active, have you experienced any documentation of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. I know there were cases of tuberculosis and resistant strains. Could you expand on that? We show a young man in Peru who acquired multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis. So in other words, he didn't get tuberculosis and it became resistant to the medication he was taking. He acquired multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis. That was the, the strain that he got. And it's heartbreaking. He went through an incredible amount of pain getting treatment. It was years of his life and years of treatment. And now he has become 
a huge advocate in this world and in discussing resistance and how to prevent resistance and how we need to focus on this. I think it's one of the greatest challenges, absolutely one of the greatest challenges facing us today, both in global health, in the U.S. Just a quick Google search will terrify you in terms of the mutation and and how dangerous it can be to people. And one thing that I saw over and over again is drug-resistant staph infections. People get a cut. They call them risings in Liberia, like a boil, and it's it's MRSA, but it's a huge problem, and it's highly contagious, and it is resistant to so many drugs and causes a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. I was glad you brought that up because I was going to talk about that exactly. I think people are somewhat numb to tuberculosis because we don't even really have it in this country very much. We do see people coming here with the resistant verse uh, form of it. But the thing that is really affecting a lot of people is MRSA. It's MRSA stands for methicillin resistant staph aureus. Staph aureus is a very common bacteria. It basically lives on your skin. But the resistant form of staph is deadly. And it used to be a very rare occurrence. And now it's a communal bacteria. It's out in gyms. It's in schools. And so it's become a huge problem in healthcare. I was actually visiting a clinic because of my background working in pharma industry and medical device industry. And I was there to visit the clinic to see how they're using one of our products. And there was a patient there that was infected with antibiotic-resistant staph, which is known as MRSA, as you mentioned. And the thing that a lot of people haven't learned or have not paid attention to is that actually in some cases, MRSA can turn into necrotizing fasciitis, which is the next stage of mutation for this bacteria. After infecting your wound, it can turn into flesh-eating bacteria. So it starts actually not only infecting, is eating away literally your arm. And the only way you can treat this, you're a physician, I'm not, you can talk about this, but all the standard care I have seen in clinics, even in the United States, they debride, they cut away, and they flush it with topical antibiotics. And eventually, there was one patient actually in Florida that they had to amputate his arm because the concern is if he gets to the trunk part of the body, there's no way to fight it. The patient is going to die. Do you have experience with this? Have you seen wounds with necrotizing fasciitis? Unfortunately, I have. Like I said, it used to be a fairly uncommon occurrence. Now it's on a daily basis. The other thing that's really unique is that once a patient has MRSA, they're labeled as MRSA. That bacteria colonizes that patient and remains with that patient for a very long time. And in order to become MRSA-free, it requires two cultures of the area that are negative. And it's shocking how many patients walk in the hospital with the diagnosis of MRSA. They've had it, and they still have it. It takes over the body, and it not only eats the flesh, but it then leads to bloodstream infections, leading to sepsis and death. It's only one of the really bad antibiotic resistance bacteria that we deal with. We have some called VRE, mycin-resistant enterococcus. Actually, I did a little bit of research prior to this podcast, just looking at the general average on antibiotic-resistant infections in the United States, where we pride ourselves about our healthcare. According to CDC, on average, someone in the United States gets an antibiotic-resistant infection 
every 11 seconds and every 15 minutes somebody dies and that's according to one of the peer-reviewed publications on cdc and i remember a few years back there was an interview with former prime minister of uk david cameron i don't know if either one of you guys ever watched that interview it is still on youtube if you google it and in that interview, he warned about the increasing threat of antibiotic-resistant strain of bacteria. And he went on to say that this is indeed, I'm actually reading his quote here, this is indeed a huge and growing problem for all countries. And without new weapons to fight resistant bacteria, the world soon be cast back into the dark ages of medicine. We all talk about COVID. Everybody's worried about COVID-19 or being infected with some sort of a mutation of it. And that's what the news is heavily focused on. But there is a silent pandemic, but growing antibiotic-resistant bacteria in terms of a pandemic globally that is overwhelming the healthcare system. I just wanted to reiterate that we're no longer able to even develop new antibiotics. We've reached the end of the rope. And there's bacteria now that are resistant to everything that's available. We have in this country, in the United States, we have infections where they have this bacteria and we simply can't treat them. We're losing the war against the bacteria. We've got to shift. We can't use antibiotics to treat it. A few years ago, there was a company called Cubist, and they came up with the latest antibiotic against MRSA. This is when almost a decade ago, and they were out of Boston. And this really describes the problem. And when that antibiotic was developed, as you all know, drugs have to go through a significant number of clinical trials for safety and efficacy. By the time the drug is actually tested in hospitals and is approved, within a year, there was a resistant strain of bacteria that was growing resistance to the latest antibiotic that was developed by Cubist. That's within a year after the commercial launch of that drug. That's how fast bacteria are mutating. When penicillin came out during World War II, it took nearly 10 years for the very first strain of resistant bacteria to penicillin to emerge. And as the cycle of development, commercialization of new antibiotics have progressed, now that cycle of 10 years has gone to a year, down to a few months. And that's why it really doesn't make sense for pharmaceutical companies to spend billions of dollars on developing something that they cannot even commercialize and is going to fail in the market because of resistance. So that has been one of the major topics of discussion in the world of business. So let's talk about HOCL and hopicolorous acid. And I think is one of the least understood chemistries in the world as it pertains to healthcare and medicine. I can say, I, I don't know, Jerry, if you would agree with me on this statement, but I can say almost most practicing physicians and nurses really don't know what hopicolorous acid is and what it can do. Is that correct? Absolutely. Myself, I only recently discovered hypochlorous acid. And I know in my discussions with my colleagues, most of them, they've never heard of it. They don't understand what it is. And I think there's a common misunderstanding, not only, certainly among lay, but even among healthcare providers that they believe it's bleach and it's not. Hypochlorous acid is a weak acid. It's basically created through electrolysis of salt water. Whereas bleach is a product that's created with sodium hypochlorite. And so it's completely different. 
Bleach is actually toxic to tissue. We don't even use bleach in hospitals to clean surfaces because it etches metal. The challenge is that today, bleach is the only thing that's recognized as a defense against C. difficile. And C. difficile is a horrible bacteria that can also be fatal. Hypochlorous acid is not toxic. It's actually um, very beneficial. And just to delve a little bit into what hypochlorous acid is, I think most people understand that we have our own cellular defense mechanisms so that T cells, phagocytes, those types of specific blood cells that are useful in battling infections, for example. When your own phagocyte comes in contact with a bacteria, that phagocyte ingests that bacteria into the cell. That cell creates hypochlorous acid, and hypochlorous acid completely destroys that bacteria. So it's created by our own cells. And, and you can actually create hypochlorous acid in the lab. We have dental offices that are generating hypochlorous acid with electrolysis. The challenge is that in its pure form, it doesn't have shelf life ability. And I think the big difference with what's happened in the last 10 to 20 years is science has learned how to create a buffered solution of hypochlorous that allows it to have shelf life. And I think that hypochlorous acid is going to become one of the most significant discoveries in healthcare over the next 10 to 20 years. It's going to revolutionize how we treat infections, certainly surface infections, and I think the healthcare world is just beginning to understand what the product is and its uses. I think our current pandemic has demonstrated just how vulnerable the human species is to not only bacteria, but viruses. So infections and, and the spread of disease through infections has the, has the potential of wiping out the majority of the human population. So when you're dealing with antibiotic and antibiotic for general listeners is really a fixed molecule. Pharma companies have spent billions of dollars developing a molecule that works like a lock and key. So like putting a key into the lock on your door and unlocking it, what that antibiotic does in your system will search and search for that specific receptor on a bacteria. And once locks onto it, it will send a signal inside the bacteria and the bacteria will die. The difference with hypochlorous acid is that it's not a fixed molecule. It's like shooting a shotgun where hypochlorous acid actually is known to break into multiple reactive ionic species each one of them attacking the bacteria from a different point and angle and different mechanisms of action. And all the scientific paper peer-reviewed published shows that any damage by hypochlorous acid is not reversible. Bacteria cannot repair itself and eventually will die. It's an amazing chemistry that is produced by our immune system. And I think a lot of companies are studying immunotherapy and figuring out how to treat cancer or different types of cancers using our own immune system's product. Understanding hypochlorous acid, understanding how immunotherapy works against infectious diseases, I really think is the next stage or state of research for medicine. I, I think we have to come up with something better than antibiotics. I don't mean to repeat myself, but we simply don't have any additional antibiotics to add and we're losing the war. So we have to completely change our approach. And hypochlorous acid is one opportunity. It, it obviously is not going to take care of every single infection, 
but certainly surface infections, surgical site infections, for example, it should be our main line of treatment in preventing and in treating. So Corey, understanding hypochlorous acid, how do you see it if approved, say in other countries like Liberia, Rwanda, how would it change the nature of healthcare? I actually, I get emotional about this because it's so hard to explain to people what it would do, what this very simple medicine, and I I don't mean to just do a shout out to the name of this podcast, but it's so true. I've done a lot of work in addition to being a filmmaker in terms of helping coordinate medical care and a lot of times evacuation of people out of resource poor areas into the U.S. for surgeries, for for different life-saving or life-changing procedures or treatment. And so many things could be avoided if this were widely available. Just burns, for instance. Often people, children, there there are fires, open fires where that's how you cook your food. And children knock over pots and get badly burned. And then on top of it being so painful, the burn becomes infected. And honestly, so many people die. It's just so simple. It would be game-changing. And I'm speaking from personal experience here, which we will talk about in a minute, but it's one of those things where I just, as a lay person, I just don't understand how something that could be so game-changing is not available and is not distributed. In my film, one of the doctors I admire, Dr. Paul Farmer, talks about stupid deaths. And what he means by a stupid death is this is entirely preventable. This is entirely treatable. There's even a simple solution to this. It's just insane to me that it's not just a widespread understood thing that if you get a cut, there's this thing available that's inexpensive that can save your life. I heard once that a large percentage of problems that escalate, medical problems, could be treated at the village level in countries like Liberia and in Rwanda, which, by the way, does have a really good healthcare system and it's improving all the time. But Liberia is struggling to catch up. And if these things can be treated at a simple level, I think that we take for granted the things in the U.S. that we can treat at a simple level, that if we didn't treat, they would get out of control. And I think MRSA is one of those things that if we could treat it at a simple level, it wouldn't be the crazy thing that it is now. But I'm sorry, I'm just going on and on. But sometimes I want to just quit my job as a filmmaker and become an evangelist for this. You had a personal experience with hypochlorous acid. I did. Would you mind sharing that? I live to share this story. I got MRSA when I was in West Africa, when I was traveling, and it was horrible. I came home to the U.S., and I live in a very fluent city in the U.S. with a lot of great health care. And I ended up with 19 sites on my body, 19 very painful sores. The way it started, I was at the mall and, and my calf started hurting. And I thought, what is this? And there was just this little tiny white dot, almost like a white head on my calf. And I noticed it was swelling. And then it turned into MRSA. It, it turned into this giant, open, awful thing on my body and it spread. And 
I dove into the research that I could understand. I dove into everything that I could possibly find to figure out what is this, what is going on. And I learned to my horror, like so many people across the world do when they get this, what it was and how untreatable it was. I had the test, sure enough, it came back positive for MRSA. And they started running through the various antibiotics that could treat it. And I was getting sick from those antibiotics, all the side effects of those antibiotics that were not working. And I was getting so depressed. And just to let you know, it's debilitating to have MRSA. So here was a situation. I, I couldn't wear anything twice. So you can't wear anything twice. Not a bra, not, you can't use a towel twice. Your sheets, you have to wash them oh every God. day. Yeah, everything. And then I was isolated from my family because I was terrified of anyone in my family getting this. It's highly contagious. And I had a can of Lysol at my side at every moment. I sprayed. If I sat on the couch, I sprayed it down with Lysol. If I used the sink, I sprayed it down with Lysol. And I wasn't being paranoid. It's highly contagious. I got it that way. I got it from someone that I wasn't like sleeping in a bed with. And I actually got it from a blind kid, a kid that I worked with, a kid that I know and love. He's now a wonderful young man, but he would touch everything. It was his way of getting around the world. And he had one of these things that they call risings, which I now know is a MRSA outbreak. And we were in the same place and he touched something that I touched and I, I ended up getting this. And so I got online and started reading everything I could find. And I started, I believe in like collective wisdom. So I started looking for what else has worked for other people out there because there wasn't any really great solution there. There were a lot of, here's the accepted protocol. Here's what you do, but it was, it was pretty hopeless. And there was a, a forum online of kind of MRSA treatment support group kind of thing. And I went through that obsessively for days I because it was just, I thought, am I ever going to be okay? And I had, I was nominated for an Oscar during this time. And so I was going to red carpet events <laughs> and it was horrible. Bad timing. I, was, I I looked like like I was a very modest woman on the red carpet because I had to wear like long, thank God they were long dresses because if you saw I couldn't wear a dress with a slit in it because I had like bandages wrapped around my legs. Yeah, it was awful. It was really terrible and I I felt I was embarrassed and I was mortified and I was spending a lot of time at wound care and I was looking through these patient forums, people were so depressed. It's a mental health issue as well. And there were things on there, oh, try Manuka honey, which honestly, there is some research around the anti-infection properties of Manuka honey. And that's what my healthcare system was treating me with. In addition to antibiotics is they were using bandages that actually have Manuka honey. And I don't belong to some granola, you know, crunchy healthcare system. This was one of the major, you know, hospital systems in California and nothing was working. And on one of these forums, everybody said the same thing. There were some people who were like, try this Manuka honey, try this thing. And one outlier was this man who posted, my wife had terrible diabetic ulcers for years and we tried this product 
and it worked. And maybe some of you want to try this product. Now, I don't know why he was posting on there. <laughs> maybe he had it. I don't know. But it was HOCL. And it was the first time I heard it mentioned. And so I really, it made me interested because it was like, what is this? This is the first time I've heard this mentioned. It wasn't widely mentioned. So I started researching that and I came across a forum. It was mostly mentioned in a forum of paraplegics. So there was this whole community that dealt with a lot of infections and they were passionate about it. So I read about it and thought, I have really nothing to lose at this point. It sounded harmless and what did I have to lose? So I went and bought this product and at that point I was being treated at wound care and they were packing the wounds and measuring the depth of my wounds. That's how bad it was that they had to measure the depth to see if it was getting any better. And I don't even know if it was incrementally getting better. I think it was just really staving it off and I was getting new infections all the time. And so I tried this myself. I tried it on the deepest wound, the one that first started on my leg. And, and by the way, with the wound care, I was going through bandages. It was expensive. It really was. I was probably spending just $500 a month alone, just in bandages. And so I tried it. And when I tried it, when I went back to the doctor, that one site, and again, this is just my personal experience. This is just strictly what happened to me. The nurse did the wound care, did the measurement of that wound in my leg. And she called the doctor in because it was so greatly improved in just a week of, it wasn't even a week, honestly. It was, I would think I was going every other day at that point to wound care. So it would have been just like in two days, which sounds, it sounds like I'm making this up, but I am telling you, I have no dog in this fight except to help other people because I'm so grateful for having found this. And it was so greatly improved that I just thought, I'm going to try this on all of them. And I was healed inside of two weeks. All of these horrible open places on my body, it was healed. It, it does make me emotional because I think about what I was going through, this kind of like private hell alone in my house with my partner, of course, seeing me go through it and how sad he was and, and how grateful we both were when this worked. And I used this over-the-counter product and it cleared everything up. I started using it and I went back in to get culture to see if the colonies were gone and I was no longer colonized. And they test two sites on your body to see if you're still colonized which a lot of people are, and they don't even know it. And I didn't have it anymore. And it was one of the most profound things that ever happened to me. One thing I want to highlight, and I love the passion I hear from you and uh, the ending clinical result that you just described. It's very important for our audience because these podcasts are broadcasted globally. The audience needs to understand that we don't want anyone to self-diagnose and self-treat because these discussions are not designed to promote that. Because from a safety point of view, everybody hears that people buy drugs from China sometimes and it has claims that 
it will cure you or it will help you and then they end up having significant side effects. Hypochlorous acid, just for general people's information, is cleared by FDA for certain indications in the U.S. or by EPA for certain labels. Outside the United States, for example, in India, Mexico is approved for wide range of treatments. So what I would like to ask our audience, please do not self-diagnose and self-treat. This is not about promoting the use of hypochlorous acid and not every HOCL or concentration is appropriate for certain indications. I just wanted to leave that out for everybody. But Jerry, do you have any other comments you want to add about what you heard from Corey? And I have heard this story, and it's really a great story in terms of a testament to what HOCL, the right concentration and chemical parameters can actually do to patients. Her story is compelling, and it's not surprising at all to me. I think it's shocking how many patients are dying today from MRSA infections. And I believe that we could probably not eliminate MRSA, but we could definitely reduce the damage and the severity of many of these infections. And I just want to—I want to make a couple comments about why we're not using it more widespread. I do think that it's appropriate that we follow the the, the formulary or the system that we have in place to vet therapy and treatments. Uh, anything that comes to the market and hypochlorous acid is a drug. And if we're gonna use it as a drug, it has to go through approval process. Uh, the FDA has a very arduous process that would, requires probably at least two years of studies to get approval. And I fully support the restriction on treatment unless it has received FDA approval. And there's a very limited uh, number of applications that have been approved by the FDA, and it's really for wound care, specific kinds of wound care. <clears throat> I do hope, I would like to see us be able to fast track hypochlorous acid. I actually was hopeful that with the pandemic that we would see some, some opportunities, and unfortunately, companies haven't received FDA approval for the use of this where I think they should. I also... I want to point out it's not necessarily about hypochlorous acid, but it takes, and it's been well studied, but it takes seven, about 17 years for a scientific breakthrough or scientific discovery to become available in, for clinical practice. And it's an odd number, but it has been replicated across multiple scenarios. Hypochlorous acid has been basically in the market now for a, almost 20 years, but it still hasn't really received widespread use. And it's, I think it's just tragic how many people could benefit from it if we were able to get it into the market faster than we currently are. So we're going to dive into, I think, the big elephant in the room, that if this product, I shouldn't call it product because really multiple products, depending on how you formulate HOCL, and that's why we don't want people just go and grab uh, bottle of HOCL and self-diagnose and self-treat because we don't want them to put themselves in harm's way. But if this, the, collectively, these array of products that they are HOCL-based, if they are as good as we think they are and they are antiviral, and I have seen results that, again, within 
within seconds actually can inactivate coronavirus, right? It can deactivate HIV virus, right, on heart surfaces per EPA protocols. It, it fights antibiotic-resistant bacteria greatly. Why is it, the big elephant in the room is, why is it that this product cannot get approved? Jerry, do you want to take a shot at this and talk about it? And I can add on the business front. This is my personal opinion, obviously. Most healthcare providers, the vast majority of us, will only use something that's FDA approved. Now, we do research on off-label use, but we file an IND, stands for Investigation in a New Drug Application, with the FDA that allows us to, to try something in research. But for daily use, we're only going to use something that's received FDA approval. In order to receive FDA approval, there's a long list of things that have to be done to evaluate a drug, and it costs millions of dollars. And so unfortunately, medicines that are made available today are predominantly those that are patentable and where a drug company has the patent on them and will fund the research. And so things that are not patentable, like hypochlorous acid in its pure form, has very little interest in drug companies because there's no way they can protect their investment. And that's, I believe, the big problem with today's approach to modern research, that it costs a fortune to bring something new to market. And unless the company can protect their investment, they're just, they're not going to make that. They're not going to make, do those studies. That's absolutely correct. And I have taken two companies public on NASDAQ, and they both were involved in researching and developing hypochlorous acid-based drugs. Uh, one of them was Oculus Innovative Sciences, now is known as Sonoma Pharma. The other one was Rutagen. And actually, one of the indications that you talked about is what we did at Rutagen for colorectal surgery. Here in the United States, we actually did a phase one trial that we were putting 500 cc's of hypochlorous acid post-colorectal surgery in the abdomen, aspirated out and closed the abdominal wall and look at the rate of decline in infections post-surgery. And the trial actually was going extremely well, but the company was eventually merged with another company. One of the things that, Jerry, you highlighted is actually the Achilles heel of this product is that the fact that you cannot protect from a patent point of view a chemistry, just like you cannot file a patent on H2O water, you cannot file a patent on something that is naturally occurring in nature and hypochlorous acid is naturally being produced in our body. And as a result, larger companies are not is not appealing to them because if they invest 60, 80, 100 million dollars and get this product approved, every single company can turn around on the heels of their approval and spending all that money, they can go into the market, compete with them, and sometimes even prevent the main company who invested from successfully commercializing. The second Achilles heel for hypochlorous acid, since I've been involved in this project nearly 30 years, is that it gets deactivated very easily in presence of blood or extracts of blood, what we call blood serum, and that's a requirement by FDA that some of the antimicrobial tests that you do, Jerry, as you highlighted, for the clinical trial preparation and approval, you have to do certain 
antimicrobial test. It runs almost like half a million dollars. There's a whole area of microbes that you have to expose to your agent, and in this case, hypochlorous acid. But when you add 5% serum, it automatically turns hypochlorous acid into water. So that means if you have a wound that is bloody or has high levels of exudate, it will actually turn hypochlorous acid into water. You're moisturizing the wound rather than treating it. And because of that, no company has been successful in determining an exact dose that so many CCs would be sufficient to treat an infected wound or an ulcer or topical infection or internal. So actually, this is one area that, you know, again, in the world of business and where I'm involved, we are baking bags of science and trying to correct these issues, and I think we have. But generally speaking, there are hundreds and thousands of companies now that they're producing various form of hypochlorous acid, various pH, osmolality, concentration, and they're selling them all over the world. There is roughly, I would estimate, more than half a billion dollars worth of sale of this product. But mostly because it can be accepted into the healthcare and the standard of care because of the problems we talked about, is primarily sold as a general disinfectant or is sold in cosmetic industry and has been also used in oil drilling because as you drill for oil, you don't want bacterial contamination. And there was actually one company I knew of in the United States for producing it for specific use in oil drilling to get rid of all the bacterial infections for extracting oil. So it's a wonderful product, but has significant Achilles heel. And I, I think just correcting those Achilles heel, any company who can, it can really open the door to become the standard of care. I think outside of the United States and Europe, when you go into other countries, there are pros and cons that there sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes is much easier to get regulatory approval for the use of a, a product years before that product can get approved here in the United States and help those rural areas and countries building their infrastructure where there is no medicine actually is available to a lot of those people and population. I think that would be a plus. But I think it's going to bring a level of hope. But on the flip side of it is that those countries are also worried and they want to make sure companies don't take advantage of them and yes. using them, quote unquote, as guinea pigs and getting it approved very quickly, putting it on their people. And then you end up seeing higher rate of mortality or side effects and things of that sort. So yes. that has been a general challenge, even for hypochlorous acid getting approved in places like Africa and other places. But yes. I, I think if it does get approved, though, appropriately, I think it's going to open up a whole world of new frontiers for treatment options for infected patients. Yes. Here's what I think about that is that in my experience, I have worked and interviewed and seen the ministries of health, for instance, in Rwanda, 
And these are incredibly smart people working under difficult conditions and really doing incredible work. And what I'm heartened by is that these healthcare professionals and these administrative professionals that I know, and it's not everyone, but they're smart and they're not, yes, they don't want to harm their people in any way. At the same time, they have to solve problems. If they just did things the way the U.S. system works, it would be too slow. And they do have their own regulatory processes, but they're also very practical. For instance, what was the vaccine that was given to prevent HPV? You guys know what I'm talking about? The HPV vaccine. (laughs) That's what it was. It's the human papillomavirus. And women die at alarming rates of, of cervical cancer in Africa. And particularly in Rwanda, it was just a devastating disease where women were dying so young of this disease that when this vaccine came out was incredibly preventable. And the Ministry of Health in Rwanda recognized, okay, this vaccine is here. And there were questions about it. It was approved, but there were questions about it in other parts of the world. And is it a good idea or is it not a good idea? And they said, look, the science is here. The science is is documented. It is real. We accept it. And they undertook a campaign to vaccinate every single girl, teenage girl of a certain age in Rwanda to a mass vaccination campaign to prevent HPV, which leads to these crazy rates of cervical cancer in women and mothers. And it was incredibly successful. And it was so forward thinking and so smart. And that's the kind of innovative thinking that we're seeing in these countries. There's just such an image of poor countries as just backwards and just corrupt or whatever. And it's just outdated. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but hey, it exists all over the world in rich countries as well. But there are really smart, forward thinking, good, compassionate scientists and medical professionals who understand that you can't be a bystander to suffering if the science is there to support a a medicine that can change lives and prevent death and suffering, just sheer human suffering. And so I'm excited and hopeful that something like HOCL can be accepted because I do think that the if the science is there and it can prevent death, I really think that there's, in my opinion, I think there's a need and that there's that there are good smart people in the right places that that can help guide the process of having something like this accepted and and used following the right government regulatory processes. I 100% agree with that. I am so excited about this drug, and I'm frustrated that I can't get it into use faster. And I'm biting my tongue to try to uh, stay within the lines of, of the regulatory process. But the regulatory process is so slow and so expensive, and there are lives lost daily. There are so many practical applications for this drug that, that I can't wait to get my hands on. I am convinced this would be, should be the front line of treatment against COVID and new viruses that are coming up every day. 
the the one particular area that I got excited about the most with the course has to do with its ability to sterilize, essentially eliminate all bacteria and other prokaryotic cell life, so viruses, spores, fungus, molds. Every surgical procedure that's performed, we sterilize the skin with a solution that's either betadine, which is not very effective, or chlorhexidine, which is an alcohol-based product. That's the standard treatment today. Neither of those are 100% effective against all bacteria. They Neither one kill C. difficile. So if C. difficile is on a patient's skin, that prepping will not uh, kill that bacteria. The other huge problem is that the primary product that's used today is chlorhexidine, which is alcohol-based. Alcohol is flammable. And we have these horrible events every year in the United States. That's actually a worldwide problem. And any time there's an event that should never happen, we call these never events or they're sentinel events. A operating room fire is considered a sentinel event. It should never happen. And yet, though we're aware of it, we still see hundreds of cases every year worldwide where a patient gets prepped with chlorhexidine. There's a area, oxygen-rich area where oxygen is, is around the wound. And the surgeon uses an electrocautery pen called a bovi that causes a spark to stop bleeding. That's how we stop bleeding once we make a cut in the skin. And the combination of that spark with alcohol and oxygen causes an eruption of flame. And that area of the body that was covered with chlorhexidine bursts into flame and it, and it burns the patient. And it's a severe burn, really a disruptive burn that causes scars. And a lot of them occur around the head and neck region. And we have not been able to stop this. Hypochlorous acid would be a more effective treatment, a more effective solution to use for sterilization, and it would eliminate the burns. It, it's not flammable. So that's just one example of a product that will change healthcare once we get through the approval process. And it's just frustrating to me that it's going to take us two or more years to get through the regulatory process to make it available. So I'd like to add a couple comments here, too, as well. We talked about vaccines, and I really believe vaccines are an important part of the arsenals of drugs that we have or treatments against infectious diseases, and there's always room for vaccines. But first time when the whole COVID pandemic happened, in my humble view, this is what I shared with my colleagues, we were sitting in a restaurant, we were talking in the beginning of the pandemic. I said that this virus is going to mutate. This is 101 microbiology, right? Viruses mutate. When HIV came out, Corey, I don't know if you remember, or Jerry, in, in 80s, and pharmaceutical companies were coming up with all these medications against HIV, there was one patient in San Francisco that was actually after passed away, they were doing biopsy, and they found two different strains of HIV, one in his colon and one in his blood, that they were not even related. So at the alarming rate, viruses, they're gonna, they're gonna mutate. And now we are seeing a mutation coming out of Africa, there's one out of Europe, there's one coming out of uh, California, and, and, and so on. And this is going to continue. This is the evolution of viruses and biology. 
But in my opinion, if truly you want to combat something, I think you want to utilize other chemistries and other innovations, which Corey brought that up, innovations, that you don't have to worry about viruses mutating. Because whether it's HIV or mutations of HIV or if it's COVID-19 or whatever mutations there are, the basic mechanism of action of hypochlorous acid works the same way. You don't have to change the hypochlorous acid every year like vaccines to fight the new mutation. And that's one of the reasons now HOCL is actually being considered in one of the European countries for a special chemistry of it to be used as a drug for treatment of pulmonary infections in COVID-positive patients. And we need, like Corey said, we need innovators to innovate new chemistries, new drugs, and come up with new solutions. But similarly, we need the same approach on the government side, right? Without government's collaboration, new innovation is not going to make it to the market. For example, there was one company that made a submission of their HOCL to the FDA as an emergency use hand sanitizer actually happened to be my company. And, and HOCL, just common sense, has been cleared by FDA over the last 20 years to be used safely in open wounds. So Jerry is treating a diabetic ulcer or vacuous vein ulcer, and he can go ahead and he has cleared FDA product, HOCL, to safely put it into that wound to safely debride and clean. If you take that same concentration and you want to apply it onto intact skin, safety shouldn't be a concern. And actually, that was one of the major concerns of the FDA, not clearing HOCL for safety reasons on hands, on intact skin hands, for emergency use to be used as a potential hand sanitizer. I, I think FDA has a very important role to play right? Their job is to make sure our citizens are safe. And whatever product is going to come into John Hopkins that Jerry wants to use is actually not only safe, is also effective. But I think my point is that if we demand innovation, then we need new updated guidelines. We need new updated policies to fast track certain things into the market. And it's not only HOCL. And I have done a lot of consulting for many other pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies from Israel to Europe here in the United States over the last 15 years. And it, it, it's amazing how innovation dies. If you can survive the patentability and the funding and you go through all the struggles that the company goes through, and sometimes just sheer fact of lack of innovation or creativity on the regulatory side uh, from a government point of view, a lot of these innovative products, not only HOCL, there are, there are cancer therapies that they, they pretty much go away. And it's just loss of hope for all these patients that are still sick in hospitals and they are not going to see those therapies. It's very, when you look at it from a, like us, we are very passionate, right? We look at how we are, it, it's not about making just money is about how to save lives and then the side effect of that is potential profitability and so on. I, I think it's very hurtful to, to watch people suffering and I, I never forget 
I was in Guadalajara with a colleague of mine, and this is about 15 years ago. And we were invited with another venture group to visit a children's burn hospital. And I don't mind seeing adults that I've seen a lot of amputations and surgeries and so on. But it's very hard for me to actually watch infants and children that they've been severely burned, deformed, and so on. So we are walking through this clinic, and the physician, the the product was approved, that specific chemistry was approved for antiseptic use on wounds and burns in Mexico. And they had done studies in that hospital, and they were showing us the result. And as we were walking through, they got so creative. And what the doctor was telling me is that, and, and my colleague, is that usually when you have a child that is burned, is a victim, first thing that you're worried about is pseudomonas infection. If they get infection, that can potentially go systemic and cause sepsis. Unfortunately, I was traveling in another country, not to mention names, and it was sad. They, as Corey is, is saying, they are in some countries, it's it, it just, it's so sad to see that there are no basic tools for treatment, right? And they had burned patients that they didn't have saline, they didn't have a sterile water, they were using tap water to debride the wounds. And tap water has bacteria, so they were actually infecting the patients, and they couldn't figure it out why these infections are dying, uh, patients are dying from infection. So going back to <laughs> Mexico, they learned that instead of using saline and to debride the wounds, get all the burnt skin off of the victim, they started using hypochlorous acid that was cleared and approved in their country. And but when you put gauze and bandages on them to protect them from any outside infection, you have to remove that gauze and bandage again. And when you're removing, you're pulling off the tissue of, of the burn patient is very painful, but also leaves a huge scar on their body. So what they had modified the protocol was that they had erected four poles at four different corners of the bed. They would leave the child just laying there after debridement. They would put a sheet over the pole so it wouldn't touch the child. And then the nurse would come in every four to six hours, just spray that approved hypochlorous acid onto the burn area. And after fully recovering, one, there was no almost a scarring. It was amazing. And actually, hypochlorous acid in one of my previous companies, we were also able to get it cleared by FDA for reduction of a scarring in the United States. Finally, it got cleared. But in that country, they also realized that they no longer need to use antibiotics. And they were seeing almost zero rate of infection. I, I think going back to what Corey said is we really need to, if you want to combat COVID pandemic or you want to combat the antibiotic-resistant uh, pandemic, we need innovation, not only on the in interest industry side, but we also need it on government side. I'll turn it back to you. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's remarkable to me how you have data, you have evidence that shows just, let's talk about the burn victims. We have thousands and thousands of patients every year who are burnt and they're treated in our burn clinics. 
And we are not using this technology. We're using the old method where we are debriding, we're using antibiotics. And how do we get this into use? It, does, it shouldn't take us 20 years for the science to be put into everyday use. And part of that is the regulatory process, but also part of it is the mentality of how we provide healthcare. As a physician, I'm very conservative in my approach to treatment. I don't like using things that are not proven and not approved. I don't believe in anecdotal evidence. Corey has a compelling story about how it treated her, but until it was, until it's been researched in peer reviewed articles so that it is no longer anecdotal, but is actually blind trials, blinded controlled trials, that's what changes my practice of medicine. And there's this huge gap in the in getting from science to practice. In fact, it's called transformation, transformative medicine. And there's now an entire body of research about how we can get better technology, better therapies into practical use faster. And, it, and these poor patients could be substantially improved, even in the United States, not only worldwide, but United States, it just takes us too long to get this new innovative therapies into practical use. Yeah, I think we need patented chemistry, correct? And in addition to that, obviously the funding and the patients through the clinical trials, but also yeah. trying to figure out more innovative ways to get this product to the market internationally as well as domestically. I truly see hope. I, I really see um, a bright future, not only for appropriate formulations of hypochlorous acid to, to be utilized eventually, but for many other therapies. I think the evolution we all have to go through. The government has to, industry has to, the practicing physicians and so on. So go ahead, Jerry, you were gonna make a comment. Yeah, I, I was just gonna comment that we're, we're at a very early stage of this technology. We're trying to get FDA approval. That's the first step. But just getting FDA approval, a, a good example is your experience with hypochlorous acid in wound care, right? It's been approved for wound care, and yet it's not used universally. It's not used even in a minority of most centers that treat diabetic uh, foot ulcers and diabetic ulcers. It's a better treatment than giving systemic antibiotics, and yet the mainstay of therapy today re remains giving antibiotics and debridement. So just getting FDA approval, that's the first step, but we have to get healthcare at least embracing these new innovative therapies. Yeah, absolutely. It's just point of clarification, Jerry. So it's being approved outside the United States as an antimicrobial, almost like a drug for using wounds and so on. For example, in Mexico, other places, but in United States has been only cleared as a wound wash and not as an antiseptic. And that's one of the biggest hurdles, right? To even, once you get the approval, then you need to educate the healthcare professionals and the doctors and so on. Corey, anything else from your side you wanna add? Last minute comments? For me, I showed it to really qualified medical professionals who are operating all over the world. They got as excited because they looked at it and went, this makes sense. They looked at the science and they got excited. I remember sitting around the table with some of them and we sat there in this almost like awe, this quiet awe of what this could mean. 
And and I think that no matter who you are, whether you're a, a financial professional or a science professional or a communications professional, if you look into this and if you look at the science, it's not magic. It feels like it's magic. But if you look at the science and you look at the medicine, it makes sense. And I just think sometimes it's hard to accept that something could be, it's not a cure-all for every single thing in the world. You're not going to put it on cancer and have it go away. It's, that's not what it is. But for a lot of problems that that right now people are suffering with, it it's a real solution. And I think that's what I hope we get across in this conversation. Again, I am just coming at this from like someone who has seen the problems all around the world and has seen that this is a real possibility to alleviate human suffering, that there's a huge need for this, that there's a huge hunger for this, and that it's something that I think if we get over the kind of almost silly hurdles that we'll look back on this and just wonder what took us so long. Absolutely. I'd just like to add that to me, there's an analogy in my mind with where we're at today with hypochlorous acid and something that had a really profound impact on me early in my career. I was a medical student when I started hearing about using antibiotics to treat stomach ulcers. And it didn't make any sense. It was like ridiculous that we would even consider an antibiotic to treat ulcers. And at the time, we were cutting out people's stomachs. We were cutting out uh, called a big portion of their stomach to, to treat severe ulcers. It was a scientist who actually did biopsies of tissue, ulcer tissue, and found what it looked like an organism, a bacterial-type organism, that he studied, and he called it, and then they end up classifying it as H. pylori. <clears throat> the medical community didn't believe it. They just, they laughed at him. He was essentially derided off his podium. So this individual gave himself, he ingested H. pylori, gave himself ulcers, and then treated the H. pylori to cure the ulcer. He had to do that to convince. And even though he did this and convinced them, it still took over 10 years to get universally um, accepted that this was the way to treat ulcers. And in the meantime, all these patients were getting their stomachs cut out. Today, no one gets, you don't even see ulcers anymore because as soon as they start showing up, they treat them with the antibiotic and it goes away. I think hypochlorous acid is something similar. As Corey pointed out, it sounds like magic. It sounds too good to be true, but it is true. I'm a complete evangelist. I personally use it myself. I've used it since COVID started. I believe it's helped me prevent getting COVID. And I think we're going to look back on this in 10, 20 years and just scratch our heads to why did it take us so long to get this product into everybody's hands? I'd like to thank both of you. Really appreciate all your time. Really appreciate the wealth of information you have and your experience. You bring a whole different perspective on this topic. So any other final comments before we end the podcast from either one of you? Nothing from me. Thank you, Hoji. Corey? No, but thank you so much for, for having us here today. Thank really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, really, I'm appreciative of all your time and, uh, part and for participating on this program. Thank you both. Thank you.
you made my way Simple Medicine's mission is to provide education in healthcare and assist patients with access to medication and treatment options by providing them with financial assistance. Please log on to simplemedicines.com to donate. 100% of your donations are passed on to patients in need of financial aid. Please go online and make your $1 monthly donation at simplemedicines.com to join our cause. Thank you.